Over 30 years of serving the Arizona homeowner. 13 years in a row ranking Arizona's best referral network. RosieOnTheHouse.com. Protecting you, informing you, and educating you. It's Rosie on the House. And a great big welcome. Glad you tuned in to the New Year's Eve edition of Rosie on the House, where we do all year long, every single Saturday morning, everything we can to earn the title of every Arizona homeowner's best friend. We're here to educate you, inform you, and entertain you about two of your most favorite subjects, you and your home. If you're new to Arizona, we would just hope that you would learn to rely on us who have been here since the mid-60s, building and remodeling Arizona homes, that we know the right way to do things and the wrong way to do things. And we share that information with you, the Arizona homeowners, every single Saturday morning live on the radio broadcast. It's just one of the things we do to become your best friend. The other thing we do, or one of the other things we do, is we maintain a website, rosieonthehouse.com. And we've been airing this broadcast now for over three decades, 35 years. And we've answered tens of thousands of questions over all those years. And what y'all need to know is we post those questions and answers on the website according to the category the question falls under. So you can use our website as a free Arizona Homeowners Encyclopedia of what to do and what not to do in virtually every single corner of your house regarding every single system in your house. So when we start winding down on any one particular calendar year, we take a look. At okay, at that website, at the phones, at the office, on the text, what questions on the broadcast are we addressing the most in any one particular year? And we have taken the Christmas Eve show last week and the New Year's Eve show today, and we are going through the top 10 most asked questions that uh, we're being asked. And we're just kind of highlighting them, talking about them just a little bit, and know that all the information as it relates to that question, you can drill down and find on our website, rosieonthehouse.com. So with that said, we're going to approach here today, starting with, let's start with number six. We'll go six through ten. In the Outdoor Living Hour, which is the first hour of every Saturday's broadcast, We talk about landscaping, hardscaping, irrigation, fertilizing, trimming, edging, pruning, mowing, whatever it is having to do with the outside of your home. And one of the questions we're asked is, Romy, this is for you, buddy. I'm tossing it to you. You know me and plants. (laughs) Uh, We kind of rely on Romy the farmer to take care of this section of the show. Uh, the, The sixth most asked question we were asked is what native plants to Arizona can I plant to attract birds and butterflies? And I'll have to check. I don't know. I don't think all of these are native, but they're all desert related. You okay, know, there's, perfect. When we talk about the Chilean mesquite, I'm pretty sure, you know, if, if you wanted to look far enough back, that's a, 
not a Sonoran desert plant, but a Chiluan desert plant or uh, one of the ones from Texas, Mexico. So they're at least all desert drought tolerant of the Perfect. Southwest. But okay. to for those that love to get high centered on, on the nitpickiness of details, this, this should be uh, desert plants that will attract. And the first one in the, on the list is my favorite desert tree, the, the ironwood. It's beautiful. It's, it's just it, knowing how long it takes to grow and the subtle colors and the strength of the wood. It's just kind of an awe-inspiring plant, just the more you get to know about it. And for nightscaping, probably the neatest-looking tree that's got some kind of, you know, lights from the ground pointing up or lights in the top shining down. The branch structure, the way it grows, the color of the bark itself, it is the most interesting tree for a good nightscape. So what about that tree will attract the birds and butterflies? Lavender flower flower blooms in the spring. And and I've just learned recently with guests of the show that in the last three or four or five years, that that's not only an edible fruit bean, but uh, it's pretty darn tasty. As are most desert uh, beans, if you catch them at the right time. Uh, so the next on the line and on the list, uh, again, back to the Chilean mesquite, it's also the velvet mesquite is listed. I think you could put pretty much any mesquite there. I'm not, okay. I'm not necessarily sure when we wrote this, like, you know, it was, this was last February. What exactly made us focus in on those two varieties? It's probably just the most popular of what's in available in today's nurseries would okay. be my guess. Uh, you know, both grow a good, uh, 25, 30 feet tall, uh, bloom from four to six inches long, dark green, uh, blooms again, mainly your, your springtime of the year, but virtually every native bird and four legged animal, you can find a sheltered underneath of a mesquite out in the wild. Absolutely. One of the most common Plants we've got in the native desert soil makes a great plant. All the all the indigenous animals are accustomed to it. We talked last week about plants growing to shade themselves. What that also does is creates a very protective canopy for animals and birds to to go and live underneath. The next one, and that list found very commonly uh, within the Sonoran Desert is your prickly pear. Again, another another one that's a great harbor for wildlife. Oh, it is. When you have a good fruit-producing year, you can actually watch the quail running across the desert floor with purple faces. <laughs> they've, they've, had, they've had their faces buried in that fruit for weeks at a time, and literally their beak, their face, all their coloring uh, is completely the prickly pear purple. And it's amazing how cattle and... Havelina can just eat it, the the fruit and the petal, with thorns and all. They just seem to to munch it. I don't know. That, that's very impressive. You must have some tough mouths. I can tell you, it's very tough because on a hike I had just last week, I actually fell into a prickly pear. I'm still Ouch. pulling the little bitty tiny ones mm-hmm. out of my calf. I mean, I, I, you feel them when you put your socks on, take your socks off, and rub against your pants leg. But the, I, I have no idea what 
what they've got in their mouth and lets them tolerate that. My no first clue. experience with uh, sharp uh, plants, choya. So I was wearing gloves doing a road cleanup on the beeline. So, um, of course, it jumped on my glove. Yes. So I used my other hand, my other glove, and grabbed it. Oh, nice. That was a mistake. <laughs> and I paid for it. And I, no one had pliers. Oh, so man. I was in pain for most of the day. That, that uh, <laughs> it really does. For some yellow color, you've got the desert marigold or the Palo Verdes that bloom uh, beautifully. And there's a couple areas throughout the state where they have the roads lined or driveways lined with the Palo Verdes. And it's just this beautiful yellow canopy that you're driving through in the springtime. And even... Even when they start to drop, it doesn't even feel like it's really tree litter. It's just this yellow snow path <laughs> along the ground, the <clears throat> yellow brick road. <laughs> well, many times taking the back road uh, to Tucson through Florence, um, I mean, in the spring, it can feel like you're driving through a yellow tunnel with the blooming Palo Verdes. And there's a, the last time we went down to uh, even on I-10, then the yeah. high and the median between yes, yeah. north and south, you you get a, a vague idea of just how uh, bold that bloom is. I mean, it seems like a whole tree turns yellow. Uh, the desert willow, another great option, and it's one of the favorites from Water Use It Wisely, who you know always is there on the front end of consumer education and water conservation and, and water stewardship for the desert. You have the desert hackberry. Also, uh, canyon hackberry, neck leaf hackberry. Uh, these can vary from 30 to 60 feet. Uh, another s- spring bloom. A lot of these are spring bloom, obviously. That's when a lot of things bloom. But this one's a, an orangish-red color. So we've got the lavender. You know, People say there's no color in the desert. The mm-hmm. ironwood had the lavender. We had the green from the mesquites. We had the yellow from the Palo Verdes and the marigolds. Uh, and now we've got this reddish uh orange from the hackberry and the little red tip choya or okatia that's not on the yeah, list but know, that's a great not, one it is it is a great one so there's it's not on the list because it's such a hard one to plant and grow yeah it can be very very sensitive it's and then the, the last one the pink fairy duster for obvious colors so there's another name for its obvious color so there's five different color choices that you can have a nice variety of in your landscape and garden. Desert plants that will attract a bounty of birds and butterflies. That's our sixth most inquired about question we have from Arizona homeowners. Our seventh most inquired is uh, something we addressed on the broadcast about a year ago. It's the five must-do fixes that you have to fix on your aging Arizona ranch home. I'm going to take you through them real quick and cover them a little bit in more detail after this short break. But you know, when I broke into the trades in the 60s, sunken living rooms were still a very big thing. James Bond's movies brought sunken (laughs) living rooms into the category of cool and everybody wanted one. And we charged extra when we were building people's homes for the sunken living rooms. And as much as we were charging them to create it, it now costs about 10 times that much to fill it back in. <laughs> so uh, I've been around long enough. I'm making uh, a little bit of hay on both sides of the deal. We we charged extra creating them in the 60s. 
and we're, we're filling in an awful lot of them with the remodeling company right now. There are five other things, four other things you need to be considered about as what to do with your Arizona ranch home. Y'all stay tuned. Matt, welcome to the program. Thank you. We're building a cabin up in the shallow area, and on the plans that we initially got, they just were some generic uh, electrical and whatnot. We're in the framing stage, and I noticed in the bathroom there is not a um, exhaust fan. Is that required by code or no, it's not. Uh, you, I would guess that those same bathrooms have operable sliding or, or opening windows. One does and one does not. One's on the complete interior. The so one, that's why we were a little concerned about yep, the moisture. Yep, yep. The one that doesn't have a window, uh, I don't know uh, Sholo, City of Sholo Building Code requirements. Generally speaking, in the areas I build, uh, if a bathroom does not have any natural ventilation with an operable window, a fan is required. They're not that expensive. Uh, there's, and, there's no reason for you not to put one in. I would put one in even in the bathrooms that do have windows. And it's a lot cheaper right now before the drywall goes in. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you're, you're at the right point in the framing stage. Go ahead and put them in. I think line two is next on. Is it Charles? That is Charles. Yeah. Okay. Hi, thank you. Hey, I'm I'm trying to figure out where if I have a sewer clean out. I've got one on the side of the house, and what I want to do is backwash my pool into the the sewer, but I don't want to do it on the one on the side of the house. Well, every home is only going to have one area of cleanouts installed, and depending on when the home was built, it's either a one way cleanout or a double sweep cleanout, but they both go to the same place. The most economical way for you to backwash into that, and some cities, most cities will allow that, some cities frown on that, uh, is to get to a pool supply company and, and just buy a really long hose and run it down there and backwash into that. That's going to be the most economical. There's no reason to put a secondary clean-out anywhere around the outside perimeter of the house. I was told not to go into the one on the side of the house. You're not going to have two. I don't know. I don't know who would have who would have okay. who would have said that. I, th- I think it was a pool guy. More, more than one person has told me that because you 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 start flushing a bunch of water in there and you run the risk of uh, if there's a backup down the line, then it then you got the toilets or drains as the escape route. Oh no, yeah, no, no doubt about that. I mean, if you've got any indication that you've got a plug down drain. Um, backwashing could be a huge event inside the house. (laughs) Have it scoped or cleaned first before you... If you want to do that, any of the plumbers could run a camera down there and just verify that the line is clear to the sewer tap and and, uh, backwash away, man. I I can tell you most pool companies use the clean-out and with little or no trouble if the plumbing system is in current good working order. Why don't we go to Tom? Good morning, Tom. Good morning. Thank hey. you for taking my phone call. I have a question regarding flooring. Okay. Uh, we're going to replace our current tile flooring. It's probably a little over 1,000 square feet. Uh, originally, what we were thinking of doing is tile planks. Uh, my wife and I um, 
We want to get away from drought. So we've actually changed our mind. And two, also, I'd like to add that uh, ripping up the current tile, uh, we both work from home, it would be a disaster. We would probably have to leave or pay an exorbitant amount of money to have it removed and do it cleanly. So we were actually thinking about doing um, uh, tile, or uh, excuse me, uh, hardwood planks or even vinyl plank floating on top of our current tile. I wanted to get your opinion on that. We actually have a contractor that uh, uh, would be doing that for us. Okay, good. I would want who's ever going to install it to take a look at the condition of the existing tile. We want to make sure uh, there aren't any subsurface cracks that are telegraphing through the tile. If there are, we need to figure out why they're there and do they need to be addressed before we put anything over the top. We need to take a look at the undulations between the existing tile and the grout line, how much of the undulation could possibly transfer through to the surface of the vinyl. I would want to take a good hard look at that. Uh, We can lay vinyl over the top of several flooring products, but if it's got an uneven surface to it at all, just know in time that will transfer through to whatever you're putting on top of it. I can tell you this, that uh, in our remodeling company, we only use uh, or or we prefer to use a dust-free tile removal company. Uh, If you're interested, I can make arrangements for them to get in touch with you, and I will have them perform the job at our contractor's cost, not retail value. That's going to save you about 30%. It really does remove all the tile with less than a tablespoon of dust for a thousand square feet. It's an incredible process. Whatever contractor you've already selected to do the job, you follow their recommendations, but you make sure they understand your expectations. You don't want to lay down a six, a eight, or a $10 square foot luxury vinyl tile wood plank And then in two years, have it showing all the underlying grout undulations of the tile they laid over the top of. So proceed with your contractor. Make sure they are licensed, bonded, and insured. If you've got the licensed, bonded contractor selected, they're the ones that are going to be responsible for your long-term happiness. Make sure they understand your expectations and... Make sure you're very clear with them about what you want. This is Rick Thompson from Thompson's Drywall Services. Happy New Year from Rosie on the House. This is the New Year's Eve edition of Rosie on the House. And a part of today's broadcast is we're covering the five areas that we are asked about all year long the most often. And we were talking before we interrupted for some callers that came in. We were talking about one of them in particular. If you've bought a 50s or 60s or even a 70s home, there are five fixes you really need to be considering. Take that sunken living room and fill it in, all right? <laughs> that, that really, the only thing that dates a home more than a sunken living room is if you walk in the kitchen and there's fluorescent ceilings 
with plastic lenses hanging from the ceiling at the Suffolk. Oh, man, oh, man, oh, man. It's like my kindergarten school room. It is, it Yuck. is. What, Gary, what in the world made us think that was a good idea in the 60s? It was the 60s. It was. And most of the folks that grew up in the 60s say, do you remember it? And they go like, I think so. And then in the 80s, we came up with a dome light where you wouldn't have to touch that recessed soffit at all. You could take a junction box in the center of that area, hang a ceiling fan, and then put curved acrylic lenses all the way around the outside of it. And and that became very, very common for a long time through the 70s and 80s. But getting rid of fluorescent lights is just a good a, a good update, regardless of the vintage of your home. I would tell you that if you haven't replaced your high-gallon toilets, there was some resistance when the law was passed some 40 years ago that people didn't want to go to the low-flow toilets because they just didn't work. The low-flow toilet had to be flushed four or five times to get the job done that you were used to with the large volume. That's not the case anymore. The toilets have come an incredible incredible distance in being efficient with less and less water. Shiny brass is another one we were using a lot in the 60s and 70s. And uh, there was a small resurgence of that not too long ago, but I don't think it lasted. I even remember growing up 30 years ago thinking how outdated that was. (laughs) That was another 60s mess too as well. Well, One of the the reasons we tell people if, if you're in a 60s or 70s home with shiny brass hardware, it ain't shiny anymore. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it, uh, it is what it is. It's old. It's outdated. It's scarred. The surface is marred. It, it's time to go to something that holds up to the Arizona hard water just a little bit better. And then one of the things that we're actually going to talk about in more detail is you bought the home, and we never, ever started building garages until the late 60s. Everybody had carports. Well, in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, uh, the population growth, people coming in from different parts of the country acclimated to having a garage that they could pull the car into, close the door. It was safe. It's secure. It kept the car cleaner. Carport to garage conversions, one of the things we're asked about a lot. And I just mentioned water. We get a ton of questions. When's Arizona going to run out of water? How can how can y'all how can y'all issue one more building permit? You know, there's no more water available for Arizona. But something that came up this year that really hit a chord with everybody is what are these PFAS? Oh, the forever chemicals, yes. PFABs. Yes. Chemicals that's in the manufacturing products that are virtually everything. I mean, it's in a lot of the plastics, it's in the fire retardants that our fire departments use. I don't know that there's anything that it's not in. In fact, they're even <laughs> finding traces of it in wildlife because it's so infiltrated into our waterways that it's you know that's getting ingested in their body from their drinking water that's out in streams and rivers and the ocean. It's I understand core samples from uh, the ice, the Arctic and, and Antarctic ice is is turning up indications of this. (laughs) And it was this year, 2022, that it kind of came to the forefront because the EPA and DEQ recognized that it is a foreign substance. It is so prevalent. And they set a 
maximum amount that could be safe in your drinking water. And that's a brand new legislation that just got rolled in to effect this past year. And the great thing about water treatment industries, filters and their products were already so good. If you have a high quality water filtration system that you're using for your drinking water, you know, you're already insulating that out of what you're drinking at your house. And, uh, you know, I don't know how well some of the bottled waters do it outside of, of the industry, but, uh, you know, that would just be one reason to not buy bottled water. <laughs> not buy bottled water for a lot of reasons, including the plastic bottles, how much water it takes to make those bottles. Yeah, exactly. I was remembering John Owens from yes. Connecticut, yeah. and we talked about this. But the one thing that surprised me about where to find these PFASs was in paper and cardboard food packaging. Yeah. So, well, when it came to the forefront in the summer, I actually read what I perceived to be subjectively uh, sensationalized reporting about there were actually some scientists saying it's not safe to drink the rain water in major metropolitan cities. Mm -hmm, Right. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, I'd like to fact check that. I'd like to really check that. So PFAS, P-F-A-S, and they're permanent materials. Forever chemicals. Forever chemicals. So that that really hit a big spike in the midsummer when it came out that they set new legislation for it. And I did see an article this week. 3M says by 2025 they will stop using PFAS in their products. Nice. Yeah. Very so. good for them. One of the other things that we're asked about a lot, number nine, is can I convert my carport to a garage? And you can But there's a lot about that that you need to know. The building department is going to insist you do. The carport generally is at a lower grade than the finished floor of your home. You have to step down to the carport. Thereby, the outside perimeter of your carport slab is below grade to the point you would never just put a wood-framed wall on top of that sunken carport slab. You actually need to get underneath the slab, do a little bit of a retaining footing, and then you need to actually build a masonry stem wall up a minimum of eight inches off that slab before you start your framing. That's just one of the things you need to know. The other thing is a lot of carports had crawl spaces. That's where you got into your attic. Well, as soon as you enclose it to a garage, that has to be sealed off. We have to create a one-hour fire barrier between this enclosed garage and your living quarter. That means the door going from the carport to the inside of the house needs to be changed out to an hour-rated fire door. The sheetrock, if your carport is sheetrocked, probably isn't fire-rated. It needs to be a minimum of five-eighths inch. So there are, and there needs to be electric in there for lights and for the automatic garage door opener. So there's a lot to consider in converting your carport to a garage if you want to take the time to do it to code and you want to do it right the way it's supposed to be done. And then the other thing we would like to mention to all of you, because we are on such a growth path, is welcome all you Arizona newbies. But there's some things you need to know about Arizona. 
Well, let's start with skiing. How many people come from colder mountain regions where they might have skiing? Not everyone's got, I think, what what does Colorado have, 14 mountains over? 52 14ers. 14ers? Yep. Is it really that yep. many? Yep, 52 14ers. We don't have that, but we do have three <laughs> great uh, <laughs> ski mountains in Arizona. Flagstaff is home of Snowball. It's probably the... Most popular because it's the quickest and easiest to get to, but so easy. Sunrise in the White Mountains uh, is the biggest mountain, can hold the most amount of skiers easily. Uh, three good mountains on that one as well. And then you've got um, Mount Lemon on Mount Lemon, <laughs> which honestly, I, I have not made that one yet. We got to get that off our bucket list, Romy. It, 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 it when it has a season, it's not a very long season, but we got to time it. One day where we just play hooky, get up early, run down there and ski it so we can say we did. We we do need to get that one off our, our bucket list. And it's it's a pretty mountain range. I've been there plenty in the summertime. I've just never been there for skiing. So you can ski at Arizona. People need <laughs> to know that. But the other thing they need to know is about our rain. We generally get rain two seasons a year. And... The winter rains in January tend to be kind of nice and light and longer lasting. But then tell them about the monsoon and what that's like. Well, monsoon is, uh, the word means storm. So when you say our season, so when you say monsoon season, you're technically saying season, season. And it's just different languages. But it's, it used to be based off of the atmospheric pressure and this amount of dew, moisture, humidity, wet bulb, dry bulb, three days in a row. Well, now it's just arbitrarily uh, June 15th to September 15th. That drives me nuts that they did that, but that not, is the way it's being fun. measured. Yeah. <laughs> but and like we've talked about rings. forever, how much it's shifted over the years. Uh, it um, seems to. You know, it's, it seems like our the heat comes in later and later every year. Uh, and it cools off later and later. So it's, you know, following the, the atmosphere, I think, would be a much smarter thing to do. But we don't, for whatever reason. So Arizona newcomers show up here, and they're driving around, and a monsoon storm hits. Mm, seven inches is the average throughout the state amount of rain that we'll get in a year, seven inches. Most of that uh, comes in that summer season and a lot of times it can come in two or three storms it's not like it rains for three months and it adds up to seven inches you get uh, a rain event here that's an inch and a half or a rain event there that's two inches um, over the course of you know periods of time comes down hard accumulates fast and we found out we had to create a stupid motorist law well there's mountains and rocks in arizona that don't absorb water and even the clays that do absorb water aren't on the side of the mountains. So it all comes rushing down very quickly when those massive one hits and these wall of water, uh, just we'll put it on, uh, the podcast link today, just a few links. Uh, ADOT's got some great ones of just these walls of water coming down these dry Arizona riverbeds and they're carrying logs and branches and debris. And I mean, they, it's not like you can just jump in and swim downstream with it. I mean, you've, you get caught in that, and you're probably not going to get make it out very, very well. You so, decide you want to try and cross it. And you do, and you get stuck. You pay for the rescue, which 
uh, is called the stupid motorist law. And it's put there in place because of exactly what the law says, stupid motorists. And that can be expensive based on whatever body of water you were trying to cross. Several of them involve helicopter evacuation. And you start charging helicopter by the minute. It gets expensive fast. <laughs> so in Arizona, for all you newbies, you see water running across the road. Whoa, it only takes six to eight inches of water across the road to move a vehicle. And here's the great thing about the roads in Arizona. It may take you a couple hours, but you can find a way to drive around. Or in a lot of cases, you wait that same amount of time right there and the water recedes. It comes fast, but it leaves fast. Georgia, welcome to the program. Well, I, I'll tell you what, I'm in a pickle. I have a, I have a mobile home with um, four-foot panels with seams, you know, every four feet where they've put on the panels. And so I wanted to get my home painted. I um, said I could do the caulking myself, and I mistakenly used silicone caulking. Non-paintable, I discovered after I used it. In all of those things, almost every one of those things. So when the painter came, he used chills and paintable caulking, which within two weeks, uh, the paint separated at each of those things again. Mercy. So I, you know, I've Googled, I've, in fact, just this morning I Googled again, you know, what could we possibly do except cutting that all out and sanding it down? Just wondering if you might have a better solution. Well, how old is this newest paint job? Oh, um, two or three months. Oh, so it's brand new. It is. It's brand new. <laughs> um, you know what, Miss Georgia? I I don't know. What he tried to do uh, isn't much different than probably I would have tried. Um, uh-huh. But the non-paintable silicone is going to be a dilemma. I don't know that we can treat that chemically with something to make it adhere better, but I know just the man I need to ask, and I'm going to get your name and your number, and then I will reach out to this individual and put you two together and have you talk through it. Uh, the, the non the, the silicone caulk is an incredible product. It's extremely pliable, extremely durable. But it is non-paintable unless they dilute the silicone with some acrylic material to accept the paint. So we've got ourselves a dilemma, and I don't want to misguide you. If it were a a caulk seam or two, I would tell you, let's just get a razor blade, cut it all out of there, and start from scratch. But given it's the whole house, let me see if my man Don Brees can't give you uh, maybe one more possible shortcut. If anybody can, he can. Don's that kind of guy. So uh, I beg your patience. Georgia will get back with you on this one. The good news is it happens soon enough that if you still have paint left over, that it should, should dry the same color. Well, that's a great point. You know, if this had happened two or three years later and you painted that with that same paint, you would probably always see a, be, a shade of, yeah. of color tone difference. It'd be flashing at you for sure. Kenny in Phoenix has a question. Let's see if we can help him out. Good morning, Kenny. 
Hey, good morning, Rosie. How are you, buddy? Very good, bud. Thanks for hanging on. I know I know you've been patient here. How can we help you? Oh, that's all right. I'm just sitting out here watching my pool drain right now. You know what I mean? I'm <laughs> saving my water and irrigating my yard. Okay. All right. So, all right. Getting ready to push the wash and get it ready for summertime. Okay. It's a um, good time of year. Hey, to my do question that. was, and I'll get to it real quick, is hey, I got a, one of those conventional style ranch homes you were just talking about in your previous segment with stucco siding and pop outs on it, okay? Okay. And um, we, I know we don't get a lot of rain, but when we do get rain, I got a problem on on the eaves where they drop down, um, where the where the peak where the pitch comes down into the and makes the little V, then it runs off the house. So I got a low spot of land right there, and um, I get a lot of water buildup. So I'm going to gutter it, but I'm having a difficult time trying to figure out what type of screws to put through that pop out all the way into the. If there's a header board in there or not. Oh, okay. So you have um, the Santa Barbara style stucco home where the stucco actually comes up right to the drip edge. And and you're wondering how to anchor to that. Yep. Okay. Well, there, there is a solid anchoring member there. That's how they wrapped the stucco up to the bottom of the roof deck. You can find it. I would tell you, just take a long, um, you know, electricians have really long, small uh, uh, drill bits in particular. I would take a long six or eight inch, eighth inch drill bit, and I would just probe the area so you could identify where that framing member stops. It's usually going to be about three and a half to five and a half inches below the tile line should be solid. You should have plenty to anchor to there. And what I would do is I would probably take the nail through the gutter and you've got a little ferrule sleeve that's going to hold the gutter apart. And I would tap it. I'd mark the spot. Then I'd go ahead and drill that spot and I would fill that with caulk. And then I would finish driving that uh, gutter retaining nail through that and you ought, to, you ought to be all set. Does that make sense? So you, yeah, I understand. So I got the, if I'm, I'm looking at it right now, so where the, tie, where, the, where the asphalt roofing comes off, there's a little metal plate that hangs over the edge. Try and okay? get, try and get the backside of your gutter under that middle drip edge. Okay. Okay. You, yep. you, you don't want any exposed stucco between your drip edge and the start of your gutter. So force that gutter up in behind that thing. So I should go with the U-shape, the older style. Yes. As opposed older to. style rain gutters, right? As opposed to what were you thinking? Well, the newer ones that have all these plastic piece of crap clips on them. <laughs> well, <laughs> and they will. You answered your own question there. <laughs> and they, they will work pretty well. Exactly. for They will work pretty well for several years because you're not. Here in Arizona, below the rim, because you're not having to deal with snow and ice loads. You you really are just dealing with water and probably some leaf litter. Uh, those will work pretty well in the valley floor. 